All right, I'm excited about the lessons today. This is 1 Corinthians 10. We've touched on it a lot, actually. Uh, Paul's addressed so far in 1 Corinthians a number of problems, division, immorality, uh, lawsuits, issues related to marriage and single life, meat sacrifice to idols, financial support for those working in the ministry. He's touched on a lot of different things. Now he touches on something next that's relevant to every single person who's here. Okay, this is the the million-dollar question. What is it going to take for me to be saved in the end? And it's not not the most reassuring answer that, that one could possibly give, but it's an honest answer. It's a good answer, and to me it's an encouraging answer. It calls me higher. Um, the text that we're about to cover is, is touching on, this is a subject that had an enormous impact on me as a young man. In my, in my late 20s, shortly after I was baptized, I think I was 28, 29 years old, I took a class that was a, a survey of the Old Testament. Now, this was a pretty intense class. The expectation was that we would study 60 chapters, we'd read 60 chapters of the Old Testament every week. And so it was, a, it, was a, it was a pretty challenging class. I learned a lot, but the biggest takeaway that, that I got out of this class was that the Old Testament is incredibly relevant for Christians. It's incredibly practical, and there are all kinds of things that are woven into the text of the Old Testament that are intended for us. This is not just for the Jews. This has not just all been replaced by the New Covenant. But there's a lot in there for us, and particularly... The first 13 verses of chapter 10, it talks about how the whole Exodus story, the the Exodus from Egypt and the the time of wandering in the wilderness, the 40 years in the wilderness, that that whole story right there, most of which is in Exodus and Numbers, a little bit in Deuteronomy, that story holds the key to the Christian life right there in that story. That 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 is basically a scale model of our own spiritual journey that, that, is, that is all kinds of things are hidden in there for our benefit in the type. So I, I got that in reading through Exodus and Numbers for the first time and the connection with the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So it made a big impact on my life. And I decided at the, the, that, that many years ago, many decades ago, I wanted to devote a significant part of my life to studying the Old Testament to be able to teach it to Christians because these messages are too important for people not to get. Everyone needs to understand these things. So uh, that's what got me started on being serious about the Old Testament. And then I ended up teaching the Old Testament in Albania, all over Eastern Europe, came back, was teaching to students in the campus ministry here in, in, campus ministry here in Boston. Years later, I stumbled on the writings of early Christians like Justin Martyr and realized, wow, this Old Testament stuff that I've been learning, the early Christians used this tremendously effectively as evidence to convert skeptical people, both Jews and Gentiles, to the faith. And then more benefits from studying the Old Testament. One thing was when I, was, when I started studying and teaching the New Testament, I saw so many more things in there taking advantage of, of a background of a strong study of the Old Testament and then insights from early Christians. So this has really impacted everything that, that I've been doing for, for decades. But it all started with a passage that we're going to cover today. 
Uh, every year, around the beginning of September, we go on vacation in Maine. We kind of close out the summer with a vacation in Maine, so everything gets to shut down, be nice and quiet. I got to think. I get to stare out into space and reflect on life and where I am in life. And a year ago, we went on vacation, and I came back with this strong sense of urgency. I need to teach the book of Numbers. Okay, now why, why would you come up with that? I thought, well... Yeah, here I am at the time, I was about to turn 69, and I was thinking, I don't know how much more time I've got here. And we had just done Exodus uh, not too long ago, and I thought, no, book of Numbers, that's most of the 40 years in the wilderness. That holds the key to understanding the challenges of the Christian life, as Paul explained here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we, we just went through that, and in December of last year, how many people... Just, just a show of hands. How many people in the room here were here last December with us when we started going through the book of Numbers? Okay, that's like less than half the people. All right, <laughs> I guess that's encouraging. So I started off the series in Numbers by reading the, the text that we're going to be covering today from 1 Corinthians, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and the beginning of, of 1 Corinthians 10, first 10, verse 13 verses. To, as that was the introduction to studying the book of Numbers and answering the question, why is this important for you? So now we're going from the other side, looking in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, looking back into the story here. So I want to start with 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. And this is a subject I managed to sneak into a lot of the teaching that I'm doing, but I can do it without making excuses this time because this is the text we're, we're, we've been assigned going right through the text. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to spend a little more time on this first part here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I've been thinking a lot about this part, especially this week. So you read along the uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now think, this is the Apostle Paul's writing this. He says, I want to be careful that I don't just get disqualified from the prize after I've been preaching to other people. That's a pretty sobering thought in and of itself. So here Paul uses two examples from areas of athletic competition to make his point. He's talking about running and boxing. Okay? So two different two different areas of athletic competition. And we notice he's used Paul's used other examples from everyday life in ancient Greece and other occupations, farming, shepherding, building construction, military service to make the points that he's making. So here he's talking about uh, about uh, Running and boxing, especially running. Uh, 
So why, why does this matter? This is the whole subject about Paul saying, look, you need, to, you need to be vigilant. You need to be running the race with an inten- the intensity of somebody who's running to win the race. And so you don't get disqualified. And everything that follows here talks about the dangers of Christians getting involved in sin and losing their inheritance that's been promised to them. So why does this matter? Why is this a big deal? I had a conversation recently with David Brousseau. Many of us know him. He's an authority on the early church. And he had been having some discussions with another old friend of mine, Douglas Jacoby, and what they were planning to do. Douglas was planning to enlist David's support in a project where they would get teachers from different, well-known, prominent teachers from different Protestant backgrounds to teach on the, on the subject of can you lose your salvation after you become a Christian, or otherwise known as unconditional eternal security. And of course, they they're, they're want to present the historic understanding that, well, yes, of course you can. And he said the problem that they were running into is that in the Protestant world, they could find almost no prominent teachers, highly respected teachers who actually believe that you can lose their salvation. That, that they, they overwhelmingly subscribe to that what, what's called unconditional eternal security. It means you become a Christian no matter what you do. You can't lose your salvation. And you know the logic is, well, you did nothing to earn your salvation, so you can do nothing to, to lose it either once you're saved. So... Uh, this is why it's important is because so many people don't understand this. And it's, it's a pretty, pretty big deal. It has a huge impact on the way you live your life. So and basically the idea that you can lose your salvation, the whole point of what Paul's making here become clear as we read through the rest of the, of the text today. And, and Paul is teaching nothing different than what Jesus taught in the parables. He's teaching nothing different than what Jude taught. We, t- we, we went through Jude not too long ago. And there's one line in there in Jude in verse 5. It says, I want to remind you, though once you knew this, the Lord having saved the people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. <laughs> Think about that. He saved them out of Egypt, but then he destroyed them in the end. And Jude is saying, I want to remind you of that. Why does he want to remind them of that? Because they have been saved out of sin, and he doesn't want them to be destroyed in the end either. He's touching on the same. So, Jude, can a person end up being destroyed after they've been saved? The answer is yes. Just from that one verse right there. So, popular presentation of the gospel today is Christ did it all for us, so we don't really need to do anything except other than accept what he did on our behalf. Paul has a different take on this, and he's, he's using some pretty strong and challenging language here. He says we need to approach the Christian life like an athlete who's seeking to win the championship. That's the level of intensity you need to have. And he's concerned that if, if he doesn't have that intensity himself, that he could be disqualified after preaching the gospel to other people. So he's including himself in with the people he's addressing. Now, in this room here, I'm sure there are some people 
who when they hear this, they get excited. Ah, competition, excelling, winning the race, and that, that calls them higher. But there's other people who are just defeated and discouraged. They say, well, I've never, I've never competed for anything in my life. I've never won anything. I was never athletic. Now, there are people who are the athletic and competition-oriented and the people who aren't. And in my family, I grew up in a family that was very much that way. Allison grew up in a family that very much wasn't, and so there was major culture class when we got together. She went over to my house before we married, and she was horrified at how competitive we were with each other. And it was just the, the, the culture of my family. Uh, so, and I realized, we have people in both groups in, in, in the room here. And, and there's something here from, from both of us. So, so hang with me here. Now, I personally, how many people in here have ever been into competitive athletics of some sort which means, you know, your mentality isn't, I just want to have a nice time and get a participation trophy, but I'm in this to win in some sense. Or I'm running a race because I want to beat a certain time, or I want to beat a certain person, or I want to win the race, who really, who really been in athletics with a competitive spirit. Just a show of hands, how many people like that? Okay, that's maybe half the room, all right? So, so we're, we're kind of, it's kind of an even split. In that, so some people get excited about this, and I, you know, I like to share from, from my own life here. That uh, how many people in here? Now, now let me narrow it down. How many people in here have run competitively? Okay. Okay, very few. How many people in this room have run competitively on a legendary running team? <laughs> okay, nobody. <laughs> oh, just one person here. I'll tell you a story about that. I went to, in high school, I went to a, a Catholic school in New Jersey, Lincroft, New Jersey. It was a Catholic school where you had to wear a jacket and tie. And they had a very strange habit. The beginning of the year, the first day of class, they got all the freshmen outside. And they made them all run a mile, 1.3 miles in a circuit, the entire freshman class. And they watched very carefully. And those who came in, who, those who finished really well, they recruited them for the cross-country team. And anybody else who didn't was welcome to come because they never cut people from the cross-country team. So you know, you're driving around here in New England, and you'll see packs of young men and women who are, who are running around. And obviously, they're training for cross country, the cross-country season. So uh, the school that I went to, now, they just, last year, they won the all-group state championship in cross-country, and they also won the all-group state championship in track, okay? This is a school that has 600 students in it, okay, in New Jersey. How on earth does a school that small do that? And they've been doing this, they've been doing this for a long time. Uh, they've, for the last, last 49 years that they've had the all groups, that's the big schools and the small schools, the all group state championship in cross country, they've won it 25 times out of, out of format. And it gets worse, okay? What were you doing on October 20th, 1973? How many of you were not even born yet? Okay? <laughs> Most people in the room were not even born yet. October 20th, 1973, there was a dual meet with the school that I went to, Christian Brothers, it was run by a, a religious order, and, and it was a dual meet. They were running against another team, and they lost that race. Okay, 
That was 19, October, almost 50 years ago exactly. So it's October 20th, 1973. Nixon was president. Gasoline was 39 cents a gallon. Okay, give me an idea how long ago that was. And most of you weren't even alive. Okay, that was the last dual meet that this school has lost. Okay, most people think, wow, we had an awesome year. We won, we had an undefeated season. These people have had 50 undefeated seasons in dual meet competition in a row. They smashed the national record 20 years ago and break it every time they go out to run. So this is the school I ran for, okay? Unbelievable. I took my wife back for our 50th, 50th reunion, and we, we, we're walking through the school. They're showing us around. Alice never been there before, of course. And the huge emphasis on sports at the school was overwhelming. They have the shrines. They have the, you know, the halls of the trophies and all this stuff. So it wasn't just running. Running was, was an extreme example. But uh, so this is the school that I ran for in, in cross country, okay? Now, a lot of you are thinking, wow, Chuck, I never knew you were a cross country champion. I didn't say that. I just said I ran. And I also told you that no one got cut from the cross country team. What I shouldn't tell you, but I will, is that when I was running as a freshman for the cross country team, I told you we have to wear a jacket and tie there. My parents gave me a tie tack, which was a turtle, okay? <laughs> which will tell you two things. It will tell you, first of all, how good I was at running, and second of all, what a supportive, encouraging family I came from. Okay, so I've just revealed a great deal about myself and my background here. Uh, okay, so the people have been asking themselves, how on earth did this school that only has 600 students in it, why do they destroy everybody in cross country and most other sports so ridiculously? What is it about them? Well, obviously they've had great coaching. That goes without saying. But it's been more than one coach. A lot of it was extraordinary hard work, discipline, and willingness to push through pain. Okay, cross country is not, it's not a sport of coordination. Their size doesn't give you any advantage. It's just your ability to endure pain and to push yourself. There was also in the school a sense that people were part of something greater. Okay? Imagine you're running for a team and you say, no pressure, but this school hasn't been beaten in a dual meet in 50 years. Okay? So, so the streak is on you. And the, the, so the, the people who are running feel like all the past runners who've run there are counting on them to come through. So the sense that they're part of a legacy, which, which was a burden upon all those who went there. Now, uh, later on in life, say, well, okay, he started off, as, he started off running. Well, I, I, was, I was not good in running. I thought if I'm going to make a mark in school, I better shift to forensics. I shifted to debating. All my friends ended up becoming a lawyer. I was an engineer. And I think my experience in debating helped me in life, maybe for public speaking, for one thing. Unfortunately, it doesn't help you in marriage, in marriage life, that it helped me good at debating. So I just, I just uh, throw that one out there. So it doesn't help. Uh, so late, later on in life, you know, I, I always had an athletic competitive uh, uh, desire. Later on in my engineering career, my early 40s, lunchtime we'd go out and jog uh, you know, to, to stay healthy, uh, at lunch, I was working in Cambridge, and uh, 
So one of the one of the engineers there was really a good, who has been a track star in college, and he he had a he, he and his brother were, were co-sponsoring a local race. I think it was up in New Hampshire, and he invited all the people to come. It's a fun race, a little competitive. See how you can do, and have a cookout afterwards. Okay, so I was jogging around, and there was one of the women in the company who was also jogging too. And I thought, this is, man, let me opportunity to reach out to her, break the ice. I said. You're going to that race. You say, yes. I said, well, do you have a personal goal in that race? I was thinking maybe it would be a, a, a beat her, her personal best time as a 5K. And she said, yes, my personal goal is to beat you. That was her personal goal, okay? So I said, well, that's a, that's a good introduction right there. And she, she said, I looked at all the other people in the company who are running, and some of them are way too fast. And some of them are way too slow. But she said, but you're about the same level that I'm at. And she was younger than I was. She said, so my goal is to, is to beat you in the race. So, you know, being a competitive person, what do you think my goal was from then on? All right. So I show up at the starting line. Now, Allison, keep in mind, did not come from a family where competition meant anything. So I'm getting myself psyched up for a, for a 5K race, and I think it's going to be painful, it's going to be ugly, but I'm going to make it through, and I better be very normal. So Allison comes up and she says, Chuck, if it hurts, just stop running. <laughs> okay? And I thought, I'm going to have to use everything I have in my mind to put that thought completely outside my mind. That's the last thing I need to be thinking about when I'm running a race. So, so here it is, the end of the race. Worst possible scenario, okay? The end of the race, and guess who is just like two or three paces in front of me? It's Mary Norman. So I, I had to put the afterburners on to try to catch her, and I didn't. And the guy who organized the race, he says, Chuck, I was watching you as you crossed the finish line. He said, I think you blacked out there. <laughs> well, okay. So uh, whatever. I know. So Allison was saying that for good reason, because she knew that I was capable of completely overdoing it but I'm still here to, to tell the story. Lessons for us related to running a race to win. Let's go read that again. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection so that when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. So let's think about that. We need to run our own spiritual race with the intensity of someone who is training and running to win the prize. Now all the prizes that the athletes seek. Now this is this is this is you know, you know the people who are athletic background, this might maybe encourage you so far. And I'm going to speak to the people who are who are not from an athletic background. He says, look, all the all the stuff they're going after, the accolades, the rewards, you win the Boston Marathon, you get the little crown of leaves around your head, okay? He said, all those things they're fading. The trophies will be just dust collecting junk at some point in time. It's all going to be gone and forgotten. All the glory the people are going after, it's fleeting. It perishes. It doesn't last. He says, but we are competing for something 
that lasts forever. It's a crown that is imperishable. He's saying they're, they're, the contest that they're in really isn't worth that much. But the contest that we're in really counts and the rewards are worth it. But Paul here is like, a, I think Paul's like a player coach. He says, hey, I've got to run the race too, but he's exhorting us on. He's calling us higher. He's calling us to the high standard. We need coaches who will inspire us and call us higher as we train ourselves like Paul was. Paul said we need to discipline our bodies and bring them into subjection. That doesn't sound like much fun, does it? That sounds hard because it is. That's an integral part of our spiritual training. It's prayer. It's studying the Word of God every day. It's fasting, denying the flesh. Exhibiting self-control in the face of sexual temptation or temptation to fits of rage. It's controlling the tongue when we want to lash out at other people. It's willingness to endure suffering for righteousness' sake, even when we're being treated unjustly, following the example of Jesus. And it's doing all of that without complaining. I consider here what Paul said to Felix in Acts chapter 24. It says he reasoned with Felix about righteousness self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, go away. When you have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Okay, That's preaching the gospel. Righteousness, judgment, and self-control. Saying no to the flesh. Paul says he doesn't run aimlessly. You know, when you're going in a race, you don't run around circles, you don't veer off, veer off where you feel like going, you don't run backwards. You have your eye on the goal and you're running straight line between here and there, staying in your lane. Everybody runs in this life. But most people honestly are running about aimlessly. They have no goal, they're not going anywhere. They stray run with their eyes fixed on the goal and don't get distracted from it. Paul gives the example of a boxer in the arena. And he says this is a different kind of a contest. You know, when, when, you're, when you're running the race, it's just you fighting against your own flesh. When you're in the arena in a boxing match, you're fighting against an enemy who's trying to do you in. That's part of the Christian life as well. Okay? Boxing is a brutal sport. Basically, you try to you, you hammer somebody's stomach, their, 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 their midsection, to soften them up, and then when they drop their hands, you try to hit them in the head and knock them unconscious and probably do brain damage to the person in the process. It's a horrible sport. But Paul uses this example. He says, if you're in the arena and you're just swinging wildly and hitting the air and not making connection with your opponent, what good is that? You're going to tire yourself out and he's the one who's going to knock you out. We're in the arena with an enemy who is trying to kill us, to destroy us, to knock us out. And we need to act with a focus and hit him. I looked at the example of Jesus when he was in the arena with Satan being tempted three times when he was in the wilderness and he came back three times. It is written, hitting him with the word of God. 
The other thing is I think we need to consider the legacy of those who've gone before us. This is our time in the arena. Okay, just like the trees, the rings on the tree, every year is a new ring. This is, this is, this is our time. And there's going to be a time when we're gone and we're just history. This is our race. Other heroes have gone before and run their race. I think that we're, we're part of the legacy of the kingdom of God, of a, of a, of a long legacy of, of spiritual heroes. I think about this in connection with what Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, we also, after going through the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, of whom the world was not worthy, he says, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So this is the, this is the picture here, that we are running the race, we're to look the example of Jesus, and we are surrounded by witnesses who will encourage us. Let's continue 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That was the warm-up for what Paul is about to, to touch on here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the extent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon the end, whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. A few questions. Question number one. How many... How many were there? Let's just talk about the men. How many were there in the men in the first generation who it says here were baptized into Moses who passed through the Red Sea? How many were there? About 600,000. Out of that 600,000, how many of them made it successfully into the promised land, the goal of their journey? 
two. See, a couple of people holding up two finger, two. Okay, two out of 600,000. I, I tried on my Excel uh, program to, to find out what the answer was, and I, 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 hit, I hit the divide button, and so the answer was zero. I didn't have enough decimal places here. The actual answer, the actual answer, all right? It's not zero, but it's close, all right? Uh, Joshua and Caleb made it. Even Moses didn't make it, and Aaron didn't make it. So I think it was point... I may, I may miss the zeros here. Which it's, uh, the answer is point uh, zero 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 three three percent So this is way less than 1% made it. Now, some people may be thinking, I just better give up. I'm, I'm not in the top 1% of, of, of Christians. People are baptized, so I might as well just give up. Uh, well, hold that thought there. Don't, 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 don't give up quite yet. But that, that could be, that could be a, a sobering or even discouraging thing to reflect on. So, two made it, Joshua and Caleb. Next question. Why didn't the others make it to the end? Two ways you can ask that question. First of all, because they sinned in the wilderness. They got involved in serious sin in their time in the wilderness. That's why they didn't make it. That's number one answer. Number two answer why they didn't make it is to provide an example for us. This is a lesson for us. An awful lot of people die. We better pay attention to the lesson. They lost their lives to teach us a lesson that God is using their sin to teach us. Next question, should we be shocked when we see other Christians, including prominent leaders, fall into serious sin and not make it? Should we be shocked by that? No. Okay. <laughs> we shouldn't. It's all laid out for us here, what happened in the past. Why should we be shocked when we see that happen? And then, then the, the, the fifth question here is, which I alluded to before, why should I just give up right now? I mean, if, if only 0.00033% of the people who were baptized made it. I mean, I, I, I'm just not that. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an average person. I'm a normal person. Maybe I'm a little better than average. I don't know. But why should I just not give up at this point in time? This is a discouraging story. And the encouragement comes at the end. In verse 13. So they don't get discouraged. It says, no temptation has overtaken you such as this, except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able with. The temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Okay. One of the most important things to understand about God, he's faithful. What does that mean? God always keeps his promises. So... God promises something. And we've we got to make sure we're not misapplying the promise. He's promising something to somebody else and I'm trying to apply it to myself. God makes a promise. He always keeps his side of the promise. We can count on that. So Paul is reiterating that God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. That's the nature of God. That is bedrock. That's the character of God. That doesn't change. It's also good for us to remember, God is on our side. He wants us to be saved. He's cheering us on. 
1 Timothy 2, verses 2 to 4 says, God, it's about God our Savior says, who desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. God wants everybody here to be saved. He wants everybody to be saved. The people aren't saved. It's not because of him. It's because of Satan. Or it's because of people's free choice and sin that they choose. So God wants us to be saved. That's encouraging. And he's faithful. He's faithful. He will not let Christians be tempted beyond their ability. If we sin, it's because we didn't avail ourselves of the protection that was available to us. We need to be praying in the Word of God, open with our lives, confessing our sin and our temptations to trusted brothers and sisters, and don't be isolated. Satan loves to go after the, the, the isolated Christians who were were alone and separated from from brothers and sisters. I want to shift here and talk a little bit about typology. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says, all these things happen to them as examples. The word that's used there, the Greek word that's used there is types. Okay? All these things happen to them as types. And I think about, I'm old enough to remember when there were such things as typewriters instead of word processors, and there'd be a little... You know, movable type in the, in the early days of, of, of printing. But the type would be the form of a letter, and then, you'd, you know, it'd hit the page, it hit the ribbon, and it would impart the, the image of itself there. Okay? Uh, a type is like a pattern or a foreshadowing of something. Think about various types. The Passover lamb, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, Jesus on the cross. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that there is now an antitype that now saves us, which is baptism. So the flood of Noah was a type in which only a few people were saved through water. The antitype is Christian baptism. The tabernacle and the temple in, in Hebrews, it talks about that, was a, was a type or a pattern that's provided for us of things that were yet to come. And I work, make my living as, as a civil engineer, civil environmental engineer, and before we build anything, we, we either, we, we draw it up. Basically, we're making a model. It's either a 2D model or, 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 or a lot of times it would be a 3D model. It would be, be created uh, in, uh, in, in a computer, with a computer program. Before we construct something out of concrete, and, you know, one of the things, my favorite things is if we do something in, in 3D modeling, we'll do something called a clash check. Okay, and what's it? The, the electrical engineers will put their stuff in. The plumbers will put their stuff in. The HVAC people, all the different different groups, the structurals, and then after everybody's done their design, we do, we, we run a class check and says, okay, where does where do different disciplines work running into each other? Because that's not we want to fix that before we actually put something out to bid and build it. So it's it's a it, we use models before we construct the real thing. Paul mentions here that this whole story of the Exodus is a model. It's like a little 3D model of the Christian life. The Red Sea crossing is baptism. It says they were all baptized in a Moses and cloud. He says, hey, all those people were baptized. Don't think just because you're baptized, you've got, you got it made. You're, you're all set. They were all baptized. Most of them didn't make it. Okay, the cloud and the sea. They were all baptized in the cloud and the sea. 
water and the Spirit, cloud and the sea, John 3, 3 to 5. Okay, the, the cloud being the Holy Spirit after the Passover lamb is slain. The cloud appears, leads them to the water, leads them through the water, and then leads them for 40 years in the wilderness, foreshadowing the Holy Spirit. All the way until they get to the promised land. The importance of the Holy Spirit for us. The wilderness wandering. That starts right after baptism. That's the Christian life. Now also think about Jesus when he, right after he was baptized, what happens? He's led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. To be tempted and tested by Satan. Just like the Israelites had to go through a time of testing in the wilderness. It talks about that in Hebrews. And we are tested during this time of life. They ate the spiritual food and drank the spiritual drink. A lot of people think that's the Lord's Supper. Okay, they, they were baptized. They ate the spiritual food. They drank the spiritual drink. And it says they drank from the rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. In many places in the Old Testament, a rock is foreshadowing Christ. This is one more. And this is the rock from which water came. I think of what Jesus said in John chapter 7. Uh, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus is the rock who invites people to drink the water that he gives, which will lead to eternal life. Now, people say, well, this stuff here, this is for Christians. This is, this is, but they say, wait a minute. They were baptized. They ate the spiritual food. They drank from the spiritual drink. And said, and they drank from Christ. So these people are clearly Christians here. It's foreshadowing Christians. They're people who were saved, who didn't make it in the end. The promised land is the heavenly reward, the, the reward we look for at the end. Some early Christian writers, I think of Gregory of Nyssa and Life of Moses, they saw some other things in here too. Okay, so think about that. If the Red Sea is baptism, what do you think Egypt represents? Time before you're baptized. What do you think Pharaoh represents? The ruler, the oppressive ruler, who enslaves people and doesn't want to let them go. Who do you think that represents? Everybody's going to say the same thing. Satan. Pharaoh is foreshadowed, foreshadowing Satan there. Egypt is a spiritual life in spiritual slavery. That's why God tells them, whatever you do, don't go back to Egypt later on. Don't go back there for horses. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa pointed out also, he said, you know, in, in, in the waters of the Red Sea, which foreshadows baptism, he said two things happened. One is God's people were delivered out of the land of slavery. This is the only way out for them. They had to go through the water. Wall of water on both sides. The clouds there. It's for perfect foreshadowing of baptism. He said, but something else happened. The forces of evil were destroyed. Remember, Pharaoh says, go, follow them. And the Egyptians follow the Israelites. And after the Israelites get out, God brings the water back and drowns the forces of the wicked one in the water, which is foreshadowing baptism. Um, and one, last thing I want to look at is Adam said in the beginning of class, he said this is going to be about five cents. Well, the point Paul is making is don't fall into the sins that these people fell into. So let's pay attention here. This is a lesson for us. Over half a million people died to teach us a lesson. 
about what's it going to take. Just because we've been baptized and we're taking the Lord's Supper and we're drinking from Christ, we don't want to copy the mistakes that they made. We want to make it successfully to the end, and every one of us can do that. Number one, don't lust after evil things as they lusted. That's the first thing. Number two, don't become idolaters as they were. And it goes back to Exodus 32. He quotes from that from, from the Septuagint that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the story of the golden calf. Here it is. God gives the Ten Commandments. No other gods, no images. Moses goes up on the mountain. He, he comes down and the people are partying and uh, they're, they're bowing down to, to the golden calf. So he says, don't get involved in idolatry. That was a problem in the a serious problem in the church in, in Corinth, the, the background that the people came out of. Number three, do not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day, 23,000 died. What's that talking about? We talked about that not too long ago in Numbers 25. There's the story about the Moabite women who were seducing the Israelite men. And the reason that it says, 20, says 23,000 died in one day here and, and the Old Testament account says 24,000 total died. The reason that only 24,000 died was because of the bold action of Phineas who drove the javelin through the bodies of two people involved in sexual morality and it says God stopped the plague of death because he saw there's someone who feels the same way about this sin that I do. We need many men in this room and women who have the heart of Phineas who are going to go after the sin of sexual immorality, not only in their own lives, but are going to be concerned about their brothers and sisters so this plague does not devastate the church. This has been a problem throughout the ages. So let's open our eyes to the dangers of immorality, including internet pornography which makes it so easy and so successful so many people are enslaved to this sin and to other sins like it if you are among them okay no no temptation sees you except what is common to man if you are among those and there's probably somebody or some people in this room who are struggling with that quietly and secretly I want to challenge you. Talk to somebody you trust today. Get open and get the help you need so you don't end up being destroyed and your body scattered in the wilderness like theirs was and not making the promised land. It's, it's dangerous. Don't tempt Christ, the fourth sin. What does that mean? It says, don't put him to the test. And this is a reference to Numbers chapter 20. Sorry, Numbers 20, 21. It says they were destroyed by serpents. Let's find out what that means. What does it mean to tempt, tempt Christ or to test Christ, test the Lord? And in Numbers, it's uh, why is it important, so important to read uh, Exodus and Numbers to understand these things, be able to decode what Paul is saying here. Numbers 21. Starting in verse 4. Then they departed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, and they went around the land of Edom, and the people became discouraged on the way. So the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us in the desert? There's no bread 
and nor water, and our soul is weary of this worthless bread. So the Lord sent venomous serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the children of Israel died. So the people are questioning God. They're testing God. Very simple principle. God tests us. We don't test God. That's not our job, okay? That's above our pay grade. God tests us to find out what's in our souls. We have no business testing God, putting God to the test, putting Christ to the test. And said so the Lord sent snakes among them. Let's, not, let's learn from that example. And then the fifth one. And if you, if you feel like you're doing well so far, and the, we're going through the first four, let's try this one out. Number five, don't complain. Verse 10. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 10. How are you doing on this one? Okay, nor complain, as some of them also complain, and were destroyed by the destroyer. What did they complain about? Most everything. Okay. Food, water, leaders, plan to enter Canaan. They complain about everything. What do you complain about? What do you what do you what do you have justification to complain about? Do you complain about your spouse? Your children? Your parents? your marital state, your lack of money, challenging relationship with other Christians, your housing, the cost of living in Boston, your job. Okay, Stack up the things that you're complaining about against the Israelites who are wandering around in a snake and scorpion infested desert and God had God had no patience for their complaining when he provided what they needed in life, not necessarily what they wanted, what their hearts lusted for. The most challenging scriptures. Put this into practice. Philippians 2, 14 to 15. Do all things without complaining and disputing. They may even become blameless and harmless, children of God without a fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're going to shine as lights in the world when in addition to not getting involved in all these other sins which we think is serious, we also don't get involved in complaining. We root that out of our lives as well. Most people don't think of complaining as a big deal sin. This is, this is like a minor sin. This, people do it all the time. It's like background noise. Okay? This kept people out of the promised land, complaining, murmuring, grumbling. Don't do it. Close with some takeaways from us. Number one, let's not become arrogant and think we have salvation in the bag. Okay? We need to keep focused on our goal like a runner who is disciplined and running to win the race, to win the prize. Learn from the Old Testament examples and foreshadowings. These lessons are for our learning. They're for our benefit. Avoid these five sins like the plague in our own lives and help our brothers and sisters to root these sins out and stay far away from them. 
And let's always remember the wonderful promise that God is faithful. He always keeps his promises and he is promised here. He will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. With his help, if we embrace Paul's attitude, every one of us can make it to the end. Amen.